So uh, this is the third week of our series on the coming of Jesus. And this is the first time in five years I've been here that I've ever spoken on the second coming. So it's been an interesting uh, journey and process for me. And it's, it's nerve-wracking for me because, you know, some churches make their whole identity talking about these things. And some churches make it their whole identity that we never talk about those things. So somehow we're in the middle. But we've been in Matthew chapters 23 and 24, and the sermon this week I'm calling Cleansing the Sanctuary, but it could have just as easily been called uh, the Coronation of Jesus. If you have those Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And you're really going to need Bibles today. Um, I was listening to Scott Daniels last week, one of my favorite preachers. I listen to him every week. And uh, one of the things he said was he asked people to take out their Bibles. And I guess a few people didn't. And he said, you didn't bring your Bible? What did you think we were going to do this morning? <laughs> so that's interesting. Uh, but we do have Bibles for you underneath the seats in front of you uh, if uh, you don't have one of your own. But we're in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 29 as we come to the end of this uh, more lecture part of Jesus teaching here. He follows all of this up with a lot of parables. If you're able to do this, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to begin reading in verse 29. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the heavens with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near, at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. The heavens and the earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of the heavens nor the Son, but only the Father." This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We invite you to be seated. So we have been talking a lot about wheels. Wheels within wheels within wheels. If you've been here for the last two weeks. And if you have been here for the whole of this series, I'm thankful to you. And I think you'll find, especially next weekend as everything comes together, that there's a blessing for having been here through the series. But we've been talking about these wheels. Actually, we started talking about these wheels. Maybe you didn't realize this. I didn't really realize it. Two years ago, April of 2016, we began a series through the book of Judges. In the very first sermon of that series, we talked about what scholars call the cycle of Judges. And everybody has seen it in the book of Judges because you'd really have to be a terrible reader not to see it. It's so overtly there. But in the period of Judges, it begins with the people living faithfully to the law that was given to them at Mount Sinai, and then they move into rebellion, and then as punishment for their sins, God lets their enemies, he withdraws his hands of protection, lets their enemies conquer them, they move into a period in which they repent and they cry out for help from the Lord, and then he sends a judge, a deliverer, a hero of some sort, Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, you remember the stories, and they come and they, in a period of restoration, deliver the people from their bondage to their enemies, and then they reestablish faithfulness to Yahweh, and the people live faithfully, usually in the period of the judges, only as long as the judge that delivered them lives. But 
eventually they forget and they fall back into rebellion and the cycle repeats. And that cycle repeats all through Judges. Some of you remember that series we did in 2016. Well, what I've been trying to express to us in this series now is that the cycle that is very apparent in Judges, if we're reading the Bible with eyes open, is also very apparent in the book of Joshua. It's very apparent in the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. In fact, Jesus seems to indicate that that cycle that we see in the Judges is the cycle of humanity on earth, and it will repeat and repeat and repeat until Jesus returns. That's what we've been talking about. So if you weren't here, that's the summary. I think we said better things than that, but we at least said that. So today I want to talk about the specific timing of the second coming. In the turn of the wheel of history when Jesus will return. And that is what this wheel is meant to represent. So the cycles... This is the big cycle of history, the biggest of all big pictures that starts really at Sinai. You could say it starts in Eden, but we're going to talk about it starting at Sinai. This is the big, big picture. Now, don't get confused, though it's easy to get confused, because I've also been saying that this wheel turns in your own personal life, that it turns in the life of your family, that it turns in the life of your church community, that it turns in the life of your nation, that it turns in the life of your culture. So there are many wheels, and we all can't help but follow this track. But history itself is also following this track. And so the story we're told in the scriptures, just to summarize it really quickly, is that God begins his relationship with humanity with covenants. So he did that in Eden when he told them they could eat of any tree that they wanted to, but they couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They would have life if they ate from the other trees. They would reap death if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was a covenant. The people moved into rebellion and the story goes. He also made a covenant with Noah and said he would never destroy the earth again, but he expected the people to live by certain values. You can find them in Genesis chapter 8. And again, the people move into rebellion and the cycle repeats. He comes to Abraham and he makes a covenant with him in chapter 12 of Genesis. And then again in chapter 22. Well, chapter 17. And then in chapter 22. And again, he tells Abraham what he wants of him and what he'll do for him. And they make an agreement. And then the children of Abraham move into rebellion. But this is penultimately recognized in the covenant that God gives on Mount Sinai. You can find the story in Exodus 19 and 20 and and following. That covenant that God gives is a final and first declaration of the ethics and values God wants his people to live by. And he promises he will help them to live by these ethics and these standards. That he will be their God and he will be with them. But they are still responsible to obey. And then he lays out what will happen if they don't and what will happen if they do. And the people of Israel move into a time of rebellion. The truth is that all the earth is in this rebellion. And the people of Israel too are in it. And the text of the New Testament tells us that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. What the Apostle Paul in that verse is telling us is that humanity was still in a state of rebellion when Jesus first came. Now the Jewish people thought that the Messiah would come at the end of the red, at the end of a period of repentance to bring restoration to the people of Israel and establish a kingdom of God on earth. It was surprising to them that he came when he did. 
And so when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, a whole lot of people thought they were on the wrong part of that wheel. They thought they were on the red, getting ready to go into restoration, which is why some of Jesus' followers were zealots and people who wanted to overthrow the Romans. Because of when the Messiah said he was here, they mistook where they were on the wheel. But the truth is, he was coming twice. They knew about the second one. They didn't know about the first one, and that confused them. But he came while we were still sinners. It's a strange irony of history, and this is biblically sustainable all throughout, that Jesus' first coming heralds in a time of God's withdrawal from the people of the earth. That seems strange, right? Because in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, and so there's some kind of immediacy of God's presence for Christians, but not for the world. The coming of Jesus heralds the beginning of the end. That's what the New Testament teaches. And so, from the time Jesus uh, rises from the dead in 33 AD is my best guess, but there are a couple of other dates right around there that it could be, I think, 33 AD. From that point until now, we have been in a period of human history where God has begun to remove the hedges that protect us. And for this reason, many Christians and non-believers who lived during this period from 33 AD to today feel that God is absent. They feel maybe even God doesn't exist. They feel like maybe uh, nature is just running its course with no direction. They feel like the world is a runaway train. Of course they do. Jesus said that that's how it would look because we're moving into a historical time of judgment for our sins. Jesus initiates that. But what he promises is that any who during this period turn to him can be saved from the final outcome of this wheel. That's what he promises. And so, as much as this is a time of judgment, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 also calls this blue and red of that ark the day of salvation. It is the opportunity for humanity to repent and to return to Jesus. So his second coming is going to come at the end of this period. And this has been as long as it is, as we've been talking about, because of God's grace. Because God has not given up on us. When Jesus finally comes the second time, the era of grace will be over. And whatever decision has been made by then will be the decision forever. And so we are in a period of grace. And Jesus will come at the end of it. And according to the book of Revelation, when he comes, he will come first to reign here on the earth for a thousand years to show us what this world should have been and how we should have been living and what he created it for. And then at the end of the thousand years is when final judgment will come and the new heavens and the new earth will be our future. So this is the story of scripture. This is the coming of Jesus. The difficulty for every generation is, how close are we to the end of God's grace? How close are we to the time when God says, enough, it's over. Jesus is coming. We're going to get this thing cleaned up. When is that going to end? And I can at least say we're 2,000 years closer than Paul was. (laughs) But one thing that I've been talking about throughout this series, and I want to reiterate it again is that somehow all the little wheels of our lives and cultures and history are going to align to this moment when Jesus returns with the big wheel. That's the story that we've been tracking. Why this wheel? Why over and over and over again? Well, I said this last week, and I want to reiterate it here at the beginning this week. The cycle grows out of the mercy and the holiness of our God. 
So God is just. Meaning that when we live into rebellion, there must be consequence. That's why the wheel keeps turning in terms of his withdrawal and our repentance. But he's also a love, a God of grace and of chesed, of steadfast loyalty. And so he keeps letting the wheel turn, giving us more and more choices. If there's any one verse in all the scriptures, or three verses, I guess, that each of us should commit to memory, it most certainly are these. When Moses asked to see God's glory... This is the way God described himself. Most of what else we get in the scriptures, people are describing God based on their experiences with him. But this is God's description of his own nature. We find it in 34, 5 through 7 of Exodus. Here it is. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there and proclaimed the name Yahweh, which is the name God gave to himself. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's our Hebrew word chesed that we talked about a few weeks ago. And abounding in chesed and faithfulness, keeping chesed for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is God's description of himself. And if you've had eyes to see and ears to hear over these last three weeks, you'll see that the reason for the wheel that we've been caught on is described perfectly here. As we move back to Matthew 24... Jesus is more or less prophesying in the verses we read together his own coronation. When he will be made king of the earth. Now the scriptures tell us he's already king of the heavens. He's already enthroned in the heavens at the right hand of God. We'll talk about that a little bit later. He's already the God of the heavens. He is already ruling there. But he is not yet ruling on the earth. Not in the way that he will when he comes again. So he's predicting the day he will come to be coronated as the king of the earth, as he is already coronated as the king of the heavens. And there is so much bound up in that prophecy of his coronation. We're going to explore the way in which Jesus' prophecies bring together three strands of the gospel, and they are essential. The first is the sign of the Son of Man. The second is the search of God that all humanity is embarking in. And third what it means for Jesus to be our savior. And to do this, I'm going to have to, Jesus is quoting from all over the place in order to make these prophecies. So we're going to go back to the source material. There's going to be a lot of reading today. That's why I said you're going to need your Bible. But we're going to start our first point, the sign of the son of man. This is how Jesus begins. And he's getting this language from the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles uh, there, you can turn to the book of Daniel in the first Testament in the old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel's prophecies are repetitive also. If you like this cycle, you'll love Daniel because he just keeps repeating the same prophecies over and over again throughout the book. 7 is where they begin, but they'll recycle all the way to chapter 12. So here we are in chapter 7 of Daniel. 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And what Daniel has is a vision, which as we read through the book of Daniel, we find out that he is seeing the final four kingdoms of the earth before the end comes. And you'd say, boy, Daniel lived a long time ago, only four kingdoms. Well, remember, this only really counts for people that affect Israel, because everything is kind of centered there in prophecy. But yeah, just four kingdoms. And he's going to see them prophesied out. And then we're going to read 13 verses. After that, the angel will describe to him what this means and who these nations are, though he doesn't name them because none of them have come yet. And then, well, one of them had come. And then he's going to go back and get another prophecy which clarifies these earlier ones. You can read the rest of the book of Daniel, but we're going to read the first 13 verses because it's this passage that Jesus quotes from at the beginning of Matthew 24, verse 29. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of the heavens stirring up the great sea. Remember, the sea is chaos and destruction, the darkness and all that in the imagery of the Bible. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being. (coughs) And a human mind was given to it. This is the nation of Babylon, the one that conquered the southern kingdom of Israel. Verse 5, another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side, had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth, and was told, arise, devour many bodies. This is the nation of the Medes and the Persians that followed after Babylon. Verse 6, after this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. This is Greece, um, for those who are keeping track which eventually gets split into four kingdoms. Verse 7, After this I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that had preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were picked, plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. Now this last beast is pretty much agreed by scholars that this is Rome. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Rome is a kingdom like no other. Because first it was a national kingdom, the Roman Empire. Jesus was born into it. But then it became the Holy Roman Empire. And the church ruled through Rome. And it dominated all of Europe. And then through Europe it conquered the whole earth, right? And then there's been schisms and uplifting. So horns have been taken out. Many kingdoms make up this one. And we are still living in the vestiges, did you know this, of the Roman Empire. According to Daniel... It's the last empire, true empire that will ever live. So interesting. Verse 9. This is where Jesus' uh, words come in. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So this is judgment. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. 
As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And their philosophies, believe it or not, are still with us. Verse 13. As I watched in the night visions, here's Jesus' prophecy. I saw one like, my translation says a human being, but the Hebrew says a son of man. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of the heavens. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So Jesus says, when I come, this is what will happen. I will be enthroned, coronated as the king of the earth. And it will be just as Daniel said. That's what Jesus is saying. So in some ways we live in time between the times, as scholars like to say. So at Jesus' first coming, he is inaugurated according to Acts 7 and 1 Peter 3 as the king of the heavens. He is presently right now enthroned at the right hand of God the Father in the heavens. And the heavens, as we've been talking about, are, is all the empty space from the, from the ground of the earth all the way up to the farthest reaches of space. He reigns there. And we live in the time between that coronation and the time when he will be coronated as king of the earth. And so Jesus is already enthroned in the heavens, but he is not yet enthroned on the earth. His second coming will inaugurate his kingship over the earth. And according to Revelation, he'll set up a thousand year reign here on earth with the righteous uh, serving him and everybody else forced to obey him. This is the story of the scripture. So it's somewhat perilous, as you can tell, the way the church has talked about heaven. Because we act as though we die and then we go to some other celestial place. And then the future is somewhere else. But that's not the way the scriptures tell the story. The scriptures say that when Jesus comes back, he will set up a reign here on earth. And humanity will see the world it was supposed to create with Jesus as our king. A thousand years. It says in the scriptures, Paul says this, that at that point, the righteous dead... Those who have died believing in Jesus and putting their faith in the God of all creation will be resurrected at the beginning of that thousand year reign. And they, along with the righteous who are alive when Jesus comes, will be his rulers and authorities for a thousand years. And any other humans who are alive who may not have put faith in Jesus will simply live in that world by their fortune. But at the end of this time, when Jesus allows Satan to do his thing again, um, they'll revolt against Jesus' throne. There'll be that final war. And then the judgment will happen. The wicked dead will be raised for that. And then the new heavens and the new earth will come. So that's the story of scripture. So when we start talking about heaven as some better place people go to, as though it's a celestial place they disappear to, and we cut it off from the real promises of God for this earth, it is somewhat perilous because it's hard to read the Bible the way that we often talk about the end. But what we must realize, folks, is that according to the scriptures, Jesus will be coronated as king of this earth. And because of that, you and I who believe in him must live as though he's the ruler of this earth now when he is simply the ruler of the heavens. And that's what it means for the kingdom of God to break into this reality. Our second point is the search of humanity for God. For this, we have to go to another book of the Bible. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. Acts is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. 
Acts is part two of the book of Luke, so it's strange that those who arranged the canon didn't put them next to each other, but we can talk about why. Acts chapter 17, we're going to read just a story of Paul sharing the gospel on one occasion in his missionary travels, but the way he tells the story is so important for what I think Jesus is saying in Matthew 24. So, Acts chapter 17, I'm going to be re- begin reading in verse 16. Acts seventeen sixteen. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. I tell you, if I was an Athenian, I would be in the Areopagus. I know it, because you know me. That's all I do is talk about stuff. And that's all they did. They just sat there and talked about stuff. So they invited Paul to talk. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. Why did he do that? Verse 27, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring. We ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You can see how that dovetails with Daniel, how it dovetails with Jesus. It's exactly all of the apostolic writers say the same thing. Now Paul is not saying that all people will seek God. He's not saying that. But he has insisted that the world is designed in such a way That those who truly seek him, the world is created in such a way for them to find him. So for Paul and for the scriptures, if someone does not find God, it is because they are not looking for him. It's an irony to me that of all humans who have ever lived in the history of our planet, we should be the ones most impressed by God. All the scientific discoveries that we've made, All the things we've seen about the complexity of life, our ancestors knew life was complex. That wouldn't be surprising to them. But there is no way they knew how complex it was. To see DNA that could fill thousands of books, 
wrapped up in every one of your cells, to see the, the uncommonness of life in the universe, to see all the fine-tuning of the earth and the laws of nature, that if they were just off by a tiniest, tiniest fraction, no life could exist. I mean, of all people on earth, we should be worshiping God more than any generation who has ever come. We should be marveling at the intelligence, the design, the complexity, the majesty that is God. But in the strangest twist of irony, the people who know the most about Him have come to believe the least in Him. How does that happen? And yet there we are. What the scriptures teach is that God designed the world, even the very place in which each people group have come to live. He has designed so that in their sphere of influence, there would be enough for them to find God if they were looking. But so many were not looking. But because this is true, at the very least, you and I have to resist the idea that science and God are in competition with each other. According to the scriptures, to study the natural world is to come to understand the God who created it. In some ways, science is a type of theology. And all of our ancient fathers knew this and, and teachers in the church. But in recent days, we've somehow made science the enemy. That's just because the wrong people have science in their hands. Our third point is Savior. What does it mean for Jesus to save us? For this, you'll need to turn to Romans chapter 3. I know all over the place. At least Romans is the next book after Acts. So that if you found Acts, you'll find Romans. Romans chapter 3, I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. I knew there was a lot of material, so I wrote these in my tablet. That's why I'm not turning in my Bible. This was just to save time, though I'm making you turn. I apologize. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome. But now, apart from law, so apart from rules and regulations given to Moses at Mount Sinai, now, apart from the law of Moses, the righteousness of God has been disclosed. So the law of Moses told us what God wanted, but it didn't really help us to see what God wanted. It was Jesus who helps us to see what the law was intended to look like. So Jesus reveals to us the righteousness of God without the need of the law, because we can see Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. So, but now, apart from the law of Moses, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. So the law evidences who Jesus is, but it can't reveal him. He has to reveal himself. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or through faith in Jesus Christ, depending on how you translate that, for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is the righteous, is righteous, and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. That's a very complicated passage. We could spend a series of sermons fleshing it out. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of what Paul is saying. How many of you have ever thought when you read the story of Scripture and you read the story of the fall in Eden, how many of you have felt, you don't have to raise your hands, just answer it internally. I won't put anybody on the spot. But have you ever felt that it seems unfair that all humanity is being condemned for the decision one man made, one woman made? 
Does it feel unfair to you? I don't, don't, don't even nod your heads. I know some of you are going, I would never admit to that. But I tell you, it has felt unfair to me at times. Why should I be condemned for a choice I never made? That doesn't make sense to me. And all the church theology about us all being in the loins of Adam when he sinned, that doesn't really do it for me. I mean, that's like my dad's sins are my sins because I came from him. That doesn't make any sense to me. So some of you have felt the, the injustice of it. Paul is saying, if God had condemned us simply for what Adam did, it would have been unjust. That's why he didn't do it. That's why we're still here. That's why he didn't wipe out humanity in the flood. Because it is not fair. So what is he doing for us in Jesus? In Jesus, God is bringing every one of us back to the Garden of Eden to choose again. And you will not be condemned because of Jesus for what Adam did. You can only be condemned for what you do because he brings us back to where we started. This is why the New Testament insists on saying Jesus was crucified on a tree. Now, he's crucified on a cross, which could have been a tree, but it's made of wood. But it's an interesting way to say it, right? Because it's not technically a tree. But they want to say it's a tree. Because they're trying to point you back to the Garden of Eden. And the original choice that Adam and Eve made. To eat from the tree of knowledge, or to eat from the tree of life. Is it ironic to you that Jesus says, no one can live unless they eat my flesh and drink my blood. He is the tree of life. And when you and I hear the gospel of Jesus, all those years we've been traveling out of Eden, ended up forming a circle that by the grace of God and through Jesus has brought you and I each individually right back to Eden. And the choice that your ancestors were given, you have been given again. Where will you get your life? Will you receive it from God? Or will you pursue it by knowledge? How will you pursue life? And do you see that our culture is again asking this question? Where will healing come from? Where will eternal life come from? Where will humanity's future in the universe come from? Where will the, so- the solving of our problems come from? And you can see it every day that humanity keeps making the choice that Adam and Eve made. They keep eating from the tree of knowledge. Now, it's not that God is against knowledge, but life can only come from God. We cannot seize it. So each of us, when we hear the gospel, are placed back in the Garden of Eden. And we are given a choice again on which tree we will eat from. We already know the future of those who eat from the tree of knowledge because all of scripture has chronicled the story of what happens when that tree is eaten from. What many of us don't yet know is what it would be to eat from the tree of life. And the gospel tells you what that's all about. But it's a hope and not yet a reality. In fact, to get us back here, there might be a very interesting uh, phenomenon in human experience that explains why we find ourselves back in Eden when our ancestors left and were barred from that garden so long ago. And I hope that this video helps. People have been curious about this for a while, so if you go back, and here's a beautiful example to the 1920s, a young scientist by the name of Asa Schaefer asked a friend, 
could you put on a blindfold? I'm going to take you to the edge of a field. And he said, what I'd like you to do is walk across this field in a straight line. Just stay as straight on course as you possibly can. So the man headed off. And here is Ace's map of what happened next. I might have to the man starts oh, to walk, right. and his route, as you see here, begins to tilt ever so slightly to the right. We're going to speed this up just a bit. Notice that the blindfolded man now starts to turn dramatically, taking him back to the road where he started from, and then across the road, and then around again, and then back again, and around again, and increasingly he's moving in smaller curls until finally he hits a tree and stops. All the while, he thought he was walking in a perfectly straight line. Strange? Well, there are many studies just like this. From 1928, here are three people who leave a barn on a very foggy day, and what they want to do is go to a point about a half mile away. Here's what happened, the map version. The barn is here. The destination is here. Now watch this. Off they go. They think they're walking straight, but instead what they actually do is they start to turn and turn and turn and end up, weirdly, back at the very place where they started, the barn. This experiment has been done in all kinds of situations. Here's another 1928 study. A man is blindfolded and then asked to jump into a lake and swim in a straight line to the other side. Now here is where he swam. There is apparently a profound inability in humans to stick to a straight line when blindfolded or when there is no fixed point, no sun, no moon, no mountaintop to guide them. In this last case, a blindfolded man is asked to get into a car and is told to drive in a straight line across a totally empty Kansas field. Now, the driver is not in any danger. All he has to do is hold course, but here is the map that shows what happened next. For 80 years, scientists have been trying to explain this tendency to turn when you think you're going straight. They thought maybe this is some form of handedness, like being a righty or a lefty, or maybe it's a right-left brain thing where one side of you is slightly dominant and then the dominance builds over time. Maybe it's just simple asymmetry. Some people are stronger on one side or have different sized arms or legs, but try as they might, and we're still trying these experiments, nobody has really figured out why we can't go straight. So what's interesting is that morally and historically, what is true of an average person walking blindfold has been true of human history. And God tells us that we too are blindfolded, that we are living in darkness, that we have no compass, that we have no sense of right or wrong. And it's interesting how because of that, we keep following the same cycles over and over and over again to the point that somebody can say something like, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And we all know that that's pretty much true. We watch people in our lives who are particularly caught in things and they just repeat 
repeat their bad behavior over and over again, following this cycle over and over again. This is the cycle of drug addiction. It's a cycle of abusive behavior. It's the cycle of self-destructive behavior. It's a cycle of emotional, uh, you know, solidity. It's the cycle of history. It's a cycle of families. It's a cycle of sin. Everything follows this cycle. And if, interesting enough, if you blindfold a person, they even walk in circles. Like there's something God is telling us about our need for compass points. And so the New Testament knows this. In the book of Hebrews, it says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. As though what God has been doing in history is putting down markers that if we could keep them in sight, we could begin to walk to life. But when we won't follow the markers, we're just like the Israelites in the wilderness, just walking in circles for 40 years, not able to make a seven-day journey in one direction. And so it's as though, you know, the flood, the covenant with Noah is a marker. You could walk to it. And then the covenant with Abraham is a marker and you could walk to it. And then the covenant at Sinai is a marker and you could walk to it. And then Jesus is the, the marker and you can walk towards it as long as you keep it in view. But if you don't, we just keep running in these circles. We might even say that our bent towards sinning is a grace of God that keeps us walking in a circle to get us back to Eden. So that we would have to see the consequences of our sin and ask ourselves again, do we eat from the right tree? Do you notice this in your life? You keep circling back and at some point, the drugs were great. And now you're back in Eden and you're asking yourself, should I eat of that again? Was that road worth it? And a lot of people go, yeah, let's try that again. We'll do it different the next time. And they just keep eating from the same tree. Well, the definition of insanity is what? Doing the same thing in the same way and hoping for different results. Jesus gives us an opportunity to get off the wheel, to make a different decision than Adam and Eve made. To choose to eat from the tree of life and to not take the road that leads out of Eden from the tree of knowledge. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is an opportunity for you to be judged, not for what Adam did, but for the choice you make with Jesus, which is your Eden. And if you don't make it right, the grace of God, as long as history turns, will keep you circling back to it over and over and over again. And just like each of us will get one final turn at Eden at some point, and we don't know when it will be, so the earth too will have its last opportunity and Jesus will return. So as we come to communion today, this is why I didn't intend to save it to the end, but it makes sense that we do. Because when we celebrate communion, we celebrate the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. We celebrate the moment at which Israel celebrated their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, which represents a whole lot more than just slavery to a human oppressor. Slavery to sin, slavery to the cycle, slavery to the repetitive behavior, slavery to judgment, slavery to the never-ending cycle of rebellion and God's withdrawal and our repentance and his restoration and then back to our sin freedom from all of that israel was being delivered from that to live by the compass points of god and find life that's what the exodus represented for them well on that night jesus ate this meal the passover meal with his disciples and he said this now is my body broken for you this is my blood poured out for you you can eat from the tree of life adam and eve's decision is not final for you You don't have to go where humanity should go because of that choice. You can get back into Eden and you can choose again. 
What choice will you make? What will your story be? Which tree will you eat from? This meal represents, it's symbolic for those who have chosen to follow Jesus. Who have chosen to eat from the tree of life and let knowledge be a gift from God and not a replacement for him. If that's you today, I invite you to come. Maybe this will be your very first communion meal. And this will be the day that you eat from the tree. For many of the others of us, it's a reminder of which tree we're eating from. And why we're eating from it. Because history tells the story of the road that leads from the tree of knowledge. But Jesus tells us the story of the road that leads from the tree of life. And you are welcome to eat from it. All who would follow him are welcome to eat from it. And break the cycle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... We are your people. Go with us this day. We have, we have eaten from the tree of life. We have chosen Jesus. But Father, help us to keep faithful to that choice. Help us as we read the scriptures, as we see the markers, as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to keep the distance in view that we might walk straight in this world. And when we find ourselves going crooked, would you lead us back to the garden that we might be reminded of the choice that we have made and the one that we are now making. Help us, Heavenly Father. Thank you for so many chances to undo Eden. How you made us worthy of that, we will never know. Why it wasn't once and done is a mystery to us. But you've kept us trapped on the sixth day, walking in circles, coming back to those trees over and over again out of your mercy and your faithfulness and your love for us. We are a humbled people. Please, Heavenly Father. Would you help the people of the earth to make a different choice this time around? We know how unlikely it is, Heavenly Father, but it begins with each of us. Thank you for giving us the choice you gave to Adam over and over again. Heavenly Father, may the people of the earth choose life. And may we receive knowledge as a gift from you. Heavenly Father, we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.